This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome along to this week's podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. Make sure you subscribe to listen to new episodes every Thursday and let us know what you think by giving us a rating and review. This week we're exploring the secrets to living a healthy life in Roman Britain. As we covered previously in episode 126, the Romans' love of bathing was one aspect of this, but there was also exercise, ancient medical science, religion, and even superstition. And joining us to talk us through Roman medicine and healthcare are our three guests for today. Hi, I am Cameron Moffat, and I am the curator of collections for English Heritage in the West Midlands. I'm Francis McIntosh, I'm the collections curator for Hayden's Wall in the Northeast. Hi, I'm Andrew Roberts, and I'm a properties historian with English Heritage. Let's start with the basics then. Cameron, what was the Romans' attitude to health and fitness overall? It was very much what we would describe today as holistic. The Romans believed that everyday fitness was achieved through balance and harmony in aspects of one's life, such as food, drink, exercise and sleep. And this was maintained by an individual through a fitness regimen, by eating healthily, exercising routinely, attending the baths regularly. But they did also believe that other factors could influence your health, such as being cursed by the evil eye, or indeed being punished or neglected by the gods. And can you just remind people what the evil eye was? It was how they gave meaning to all the bad things that happened to people in life. They didn't want it to be random. They wanted to be able to attribute ill fortune to something very specific, which then in theory you could work against. So the evil eye was transmitted from an evil eye giver to the recipient, to the cursed person. And you could use different strategies to try to avoid it. I see. Protecting your aura, I suppose, in a way, I suppose, is a sort of new age way of describing it. That's a good way of putting it, yeah. Okay. Francis, how advanced was the Romans' understanding of the human body and treating ailments compared to, say, ancient Greece? Because they were inspired by ancient Greece, weren't they? Yeah, well, I mean, I think... It's almost a cheat to say Roman medicine because it really is Greek medicine. Um, mm. In a study of the inscriptions across Italy and the Western kind of provinces of the empire, 
all of them up to 100 AD of those, 95% of the doctors had Greek names. <laughs> so it's not just that they're taking the readings and the writings and the thoughts, it's actually that the staff seem to be Greek. So pretty much we can say Roman medicine and the Roman medical staff comes from Greece. So I don't think they really changed much or did much of what we would see as kind of advancing medical science from the Greeks because it's it's all one system really. Two thirds of the medical texts that still exist today came from two big corpuses and I think these two names are important to talk about at the beginning of the podcast because they'll come up throughout. So there is the Hippocratic Corpus, which mm. initially people thought was all by one person called Hippocrates, but it's not. It's about 60 texts which survive, and they all date from 420 to 370 BC. And it seems to have been a school of people. But the Hippocratic Corpus and Hippocratic kind of medicine is really influential throughout the Roman period. And then the other really important person is Galen, who was born in Pergamon in Turkey, which was part of Greece at the time. He was born in 129 AD and died in 216 AD. So these two, there's other names as well that are important, but both Galen and the aura or the, the group that are Hippocrates are really key in influencing Roman medicine and Roman thinking about the body. Interesting. And of course, Hippocrates gives us the Hippocratic Oath. Yeah, that's exactly right. There are oaths in the Hippocratic Corpus. Um, and, mm. you know, it, the influence of Hippocrates and Galen and the other writers you know, it goes on for centuries. Who would um, someone in Roman Britain go to see if they were unwell, Cameron? Would they have been called doctors or would they have been called something else? Well, funnily enough, if you were unwell in a traditional Roman family in Britain, your first port of call would be to go speak to your paterfamilias, the male head of the household who was not necessarily your own father, could be your husband, could be your owner if you were a slave or your employer. And he, as the responsible head of the household, would make that decision as to whether you might be treated in the home with traditional remedies, which indeed he might apply, or whether you needed a doctor or another type of specialist. Were they actually re referred to as doctors? I don't know. Francis, do you know, is there a term for a doctor? Um, there is a term, a medicus, um, which mm. we oh, yes, find out course. through the army. Mm. But basically, anyone could be a doctor <laughs> because there's no regulation for becoming a doctor. Well, it's interesting you mentioned medicus, of course, because we're going to talk about that in a few moments. But how did Roman doctors, however they were called, qualify, Francis? Well... There was no formal system to train to be a doctor in the Roman era. There were no medical schools, no exams. You didn't have to get a license. You could literally put a sign outside your door and say, I'm the doctor, come see me and start charging. Quite often, if you weren't a complete charlatan, you would learn your skills as an apprentice, perhaps with a family member who has experience with healing or you know, with another famous doctor. So richer people, particularly we know Galen, would go and visit famous doctors and kind of shadow them and learn that way. But you literally could, anyone could start. So um, it's quite interesting um, thinking about that potential risk, I suppose, if you're going to see a doctor, you don't really know what their experience is. I think a lot of doctors became famous for doing certain things or treating specific people. Galen gains a lot of credit for becoming the imperial doctor, for example. 
And I think doctors would have to rely on word of mouth, wouldn't they? And, you know, good reputation. And one of the treaties in the Hippocratic Corpus talks about trying to get the, your patient to trust you. And it says you should act like a gentleman, dress modestly and avoid strong perfumes. And that is all <laughs> sort of part of the, um, you know, because there wasn't a uniform for a doctor and obviously you haven't got paperwork to prove you are. So doctors have got to show in some ways that they're trustworthy, haven't they? So we've mentioned medicus. This is the sort of Roman army term for a doctor. So the Roman army did have doctors, medics, who would assist wounded soldiers if they were very badly hurt in battle or training even, I suppose. Yeah, and that would have been one part of it. But they would have also been there to help with the normal ailments of day-to-day life. So we think that the rank was medicus ordinarius and maybe similar to a centurion rank. And they would have had under their command a role called a capsari. And they were more like medical orderlies or dressers. And their name comes from the Latin word for a bandage box, which is a capsa. So they were probably the capsari, ordinary soldiers on first aid duty just in battle. You know, so that's kind of their second rule. So they maybe didn't do that in day-to-day life. But it might have been that they, some of them were on permanent kind of secondment almost to the medicus for day-to-day life because we know there are men getting sick or you know injuries like you say in training or even in just some of the routine things you know they're doing a lot of building often soldiers and things like that so they did have doctors again how qualified they were we're not sure but they did the army did try and look after its soldiers that way okay do we know if a medicus would have been behind the, the lines uh, sort of dealing with wounded and the capsari might have been nearer casualties on the on the battlefield sort of thing? I mean, that's something we just don't know. Um, you know, one of those annoying, kind of tantalising things that you think, oh, I'd love to know that practical element. I think we can imagine that maybe the medicus was behind the lines set up somewhere, but perhaps the capsari are closer, if not on the kind of battle line, closer because they're doing more simple kind of dressings and sending people back out. But fortunately, unless we find a medical treatise about how they acted in battle, we just don't know that at the moment. And capsari is plural, isn't it? Yeah, so they're known as the capsari, medical orderlies or dressers, but um, mm. one of them would have been a capsarius. So that's, well, as you say, tantalising sort of questions about how it all worked within the Roman army. And then, of course, there are all these other questions around um, civilians as well. But um, where else could we find different branches of healthcare in Roman society, Cameron? Of course, not everyone had access to the expensive services of a private doctor, and many people would have gone to essentially a pharmacist who would be producing what at the time were the mainstream medicines, generally based on plants and minerals. You could also consult a healer who could provide traditional remedies. And depending on your illness, you might think of seeing a masseur or someone who could interpret your dreams, finding guidance there as to what the right treatment for your particular condition would be. Ah, so there would be sort of different specialisms and people working in different areas, but would they all have had the same title as in like a doctor or would they have, because you've no. said pharmacist there, so yes. they'd have different titles sort of thing. They would have different titles, yes, yes. Healers, witches, many, many people 
had a finger in the particular pie that was healing and wellness. Okay, understood. We, we actually have the names of two pharmacists from Hadrian's Wall. So there's a writing tablet from Carlisle, which refers to Albinus, the pharmacist. And at Vindolanda, there's Vitalis, the pharmacist. So as Cameron says, there's lots of people. It's not just the Medicus. And it would all depend on who you could access and what your problem was. As you've just been describing, there were these different areas of healthcare, depending on what your needs were. I also understand that there were four medical schools of thought about treating the body, according to Roman medical science. Can you describe these, Francis? Yeah, so this is very much in the kind of formal medicine, you know, if you can say that the Romans um, had a formal medicine, considering there was no training. And when Rome invaded Britain, this is kind of settled into four main schools or sects. And the first one was dogmatics. And they believed in the importance of logical thinking in identifying the underlying causes of disease. So that sounds quite modern, doesn't it? Understanding the underlying cause of disease. Unfortunately, obviously, didn't have the science that we do to actually get there. And what they thought was that you needed to maintain a balance between the four cardinal humours, which have been um, identified by Hippocrates. And that was the four humours were blood, yellow bile, black bile and phlegm. And you could restore your equilibrium, so make yourself feel better, by a variety of therapies. So there might be drugs or medicine. You might use something like an emetic to make yourself sick or change your diet or bloodletting even. And then the second group was the pneumatists. And they were a splinter group of dogmatics. And they placed greater emphasis on the pneuma or the spirit to be used to control health and disease and you needed to get or have good pneuma by paying careful attention to the environment so house design water supply bathing and actually if you think about that that's also got some kind of basis in what we would understand now because we understand about fresh water fresh air keeping clean being important to us so both those have got an element of what we would recognize as being kind of sensible medical workings The third group was the empiricists, and they kind of said that careful observation of the patient was key to diagnosis, and that treatments should be determined by what had worked before. They were less concerned about the underlying causes. And again, you know, that's got an element of sense, hasn't it? You know, observe the patient and find out what symptoms they've got and think about what worked with someone with similar symptoms. But the most dominant when they came to Britain were the Methodists, and these were focused on practical therapies rather than complicated theories. So the founder of this group was Asclepiades, who came from Bithynia in northwest Turkey and moved to Rome in 91 BC. And they really kind of put forward active and practical therapies. So regulating your intake of food and wine, so changing your diet, massage, as Cameron's mentioned, exercise, rocking appliances, so kind of being swung gently, and also bathing. So all four of those have got elements of things we would recognize as being a a sensible way of trying to treat people but it was just they didn't have the knowledge that we have in terms of understanding bacteria and you know they had no x-rays and microscopes and things so they're working in a limited sphere. That's really interesting how modern science derives from all of those ideas they were sort of trying to work and understand the body and make it work better and help it repair. Yeah exactly 
exactly. That's right. You know, they tried their best within the time that they were based. And, you know, you can see where they're going from. It's just, you know, they didn't have the knowledge. And so there was no way they could get to some of the conclusions that we do nowadays. Yes, I was just taking notes as you were describing them. And it seems to me that dogmatics was kind of around the physical. Uh, pneumatists were working around sort of hygiene and the sp- and the spiritual and, and and the mental well-being perhaps yeah. empiricists were observational so technically scientific as we would understand it mm-hmm. today and the methodists were trying to i suppose be efficient by using therapies that um certainly involved movement yeah and they were less kind of looking at theories and philosophy they were more trying to say this is something that could help you feel better, you know, and it was more holistic one there with, you know, the food and the wine. Um, They were less about medicine and drug, the medicine as in sort of drugs, the Methodists. It seemed to be about treating the body physically, either through moving it or putting it into certain environments in order to elicit a response or or whatever. So there's a lot there that you can sort of see in modern treatments. um, Exactly. Which is really, really interesting. So how useful was this knowledge of the time and did treatments work? <laughs> it's really difficult. I mean, realistically, Western medicine, which is obviously what Roman's part of, had very few effective drugs before the 20th century, you know. So it's not just that it wasn't the Romans that had kind of effect, didn't have the effective drugs, but they did use a lot of plants um, to... Um, treat people and quite a few of those would have been effective so there's a man called Dioscorides who was from southern Turkey and he produced this huge tome based on lots of earlier works where he classified over a thousand substances which were mostly plants and listed them and said what they could do to make you feel better not all of those would work but I quite like this fact that I found out so William Camden who's an antiquarian in the 16th century said that lots of plants growing around Hadrian's wall were planted by the Romans we don't think that's necessarily true. But what's really interesting is that surgeons from Scotland in the 16th century were coming down to Hayden's Wall region to pick plants to use in their treatments in the 16th century. So um, we know that plant-based medicines are really long-lived thing. And, you know, the problem with the Romans is they just obviously didn't understand a lot of the causes. We didn't understand about germs. And so as well as practical medicine, a lot of medicine was linked with beliefs and superstitions. So, you know, you might suggest wearing a specific amulet because that would help you with a stomach ache. Or we know the colour green was very important and we think that's why a lot of the eye medicines are stamped in green. So, yeah, really tricky to say. A lot of patients might have felt better just by being given a bit of attention, (laughs) you know, the placebo effect. But then equally, if they're suggesting... I don't know, a simpler diet and you've got stomach issues or they're suggesting having better access to clean water, then that would have worked. I can really understand how with the lack of knowledge, you just start to reach for conclusions which are beyond your own understanding. You start to think of the supernatural. Well, exactly. You know, as Cameron says, they're trying to find answers for things that happen in life and it's this all of life and health is one of those things. So try and to make sense of what's happened and if you don't understand the science of what the body's doing you want to try and find another reason don't you we talked um about how most of roman medicine is kind of greek derived so how long was it held in high regard because i understand that the works of galen were still being used in the medieval period 
or this idea of you know the four humours, etc. Yeah, so Galen and Hippocrates basically formed the basis of medical education and treatment right through to the 19th century, um, which is crazy when you think about it. The authority of them and the kind of being the key thing was starting to be eroded from the 16th century onwards with new discoveries and research, but they were still being used. Again, we've got evidence of things in Edinburgh, which is a big medical centre. Candidates being examined for medical degrees in late 18th century Edinburgh still had to write about Hippocratic works then. So a really long time. Crikey, yeah, it's, it's amazing how things have really moved along since then. Are any of the Roman medical practices still being used today? So I think quite a few of the plant-based medicines have come through the medieval period and might have basis in more modern, maybe synthesised things. There's a bit of a dispute about willow bark, which was the natural aspirin, and obviously we now have it as a synthesised thing, as whether the Romans used that or whether it was later. We know they used opium as a painkiller, and that's obviously opioids are our, one of our painkillers that we still use now. And I'm going to give a warning here, but I wanted to talk about this. If anyone's eating their breakfast or their tea, um, you might want to skip over this bit about cataract operations, because I find this fascinating, that the Romans performed cataract operations, and they're not actually that dissimilar to what is done today. So in the Roman period, they didn't understand that it was the retina that was the seat of vision. They thought it was the lens, whereas now we know the retina is the vision and the lens focuses that light onto the retina. So they knew that they needed to clear the kind of cloudiness of the retina, of the lens, sorry. So they needed to clear that cloudy lens to in, improve sight. And we have got evidence of the cataract operation. And I'm just going to read from a source, someone called Celsus, who says that the aim of the operation was to reduce the opacity, so of the lens, by the insertion of a bronze needle with a tip that was pointed enough to penetrate the eye, but with a rounded tip and not too fine, to be inserted straight through the outer two tunics at a spot between the pupil of the eye and the angle adjacent to the temple. And then you basically are releasing um, the cloudiness um, of then you would remove that lens. Nowadays, the lens would be replaced with a modern plastic one. But then just to bring it back in that if they can't get the lens out, then you can put a pad of soft wool soaked in egg white placed over the eye to help remove that. But can you imagine that procedure without painkillers and without being able to be put to sleep? I can't imagine any accuracy with it either. (laughs) No, so it's one that's well written about. They do talk about it as a last resort, but it was done and it was done successfully. And it's really not that different a technique to what is done today, which is just kind of mind-blowing. Yeah. Do we know whether they cleaned this bronze implement? Well, that is a really interesting thing because we don't know very much about the Romans' understanding of cleanliness, etc. But we do, there's a Roman writer called Lucian who, in one of his writings, gives us the impression that doctors weren't really keeping their instruments as clean as we would like because he says he would rather have a doctor with a rusty knife than a charlatan with a gold one. So meaning he'd rather have a doctor who knew what they were doing but the Romans did understand about keeping things clean, but there wasn't the same level of sterilisation at all as we understand it. I mean, that didn't come in until much, much later because, you know, into the 18th, 19th century, there wasn't really the understanding, was there, of germs and bacteria and um, how they travelled. 
Wow, that's um, that's amazing. Is there any archaeological evidence in um, Roman Britain of Romano-British medicine? Yep, absolutely. And most of those are through the tools or the implements that the doctors and the healers would have used. And we identify them by kind of going back to key finds where they've been found in a group. So material from Pompeii or Herculaneum, or there's a really important find in Rimini in Italy, where a doctor's house was burnt down. There's 150 instruments in there. So we that's how we can kind of work out what these things were used for. And we know the Romans had scalpels, knives, cataract needles, as I mentioned, different forceps, catheters, which I um, think the male listeners will wince at. And then also things like probes and forceps and tweezers. So sometimes it's difficult to tell if these some of the items were used for plucking your eyebrow hair or putting your makeup on or mixing up medicine. But there is a good range of things that we can spot and we're really lucky at English Heritage that quite a lot of our sites um, produce these materials. So Cameron, we would say a lot more about material from Roxeter, but up on Hadrian's Wall, we have them from Chester's and Corbridge and Housesteads. And at Corbridge, there's hooks and tracks, a pair of traction hooks, there's razors and different probes, which really give you an insight and do sometimes make you wince a little bit when you see them and think about what they were used for. But we also at Housestead, so the fort on Hadrian's Wall, have what we think is a hospital um, within the fort. We've got literary sources that talk about every legionary fortress, so a fortress holding 5,000 men would have a, a hospital, and it's always been thought that smaller forts may have had hospitals. Unfortunately, the Roman writers didn't leave us any information about quite what a hospital would look like or its plan, but a few have been found, and they tend to follow a standard plan, which is um, a series of small rooms arranged around a courtyard. And they're often in a a similar sort of place in the centre of the fort. And that's because a writer called Hyginus talks about them being in the quietest place of the fort in order to allow patients to recover quicker. And the one at Housesteads is next door to the commanding officer's house. And it has a central courtyard, which have allowed maybe at other places they think maybe they would grow herbs and medicinal plants in there also really excitingly at Housesteads we have a tombstone of a medical officer so that medicus ordinarius we talked about um, as being the medical doctor we have the tombstone to one to Anicius Ingenuus who was a medicus ordinarius of the first cohort of Tungrians who were based at Housesteads and he only lived 25 years so we're not sure it doesn't say how he died but his tombstone is quite ornate it's got a hair crouching on the top of the plinth with central flowers on the arch. So Hadrian's Wall is fairly replete with evidence. I don't want to steal Cameron's thunder, but I know she has some lovely pieces from Roxeter too. Very interesting. Lots of different things that you can talk about from the various forts along Hadrian's Wall, which is great. And equally, I know there's material at Richborough, down in Dover, um, at um, a couple of the villa sites, they will have them. Because as Cameron said, even if you don't have access to a doctor, there'd probably be somebody in your household who would be able to do basic medical things. So there's always going to be bits and pieces, I think, turning up, even if you haven't got a full doctor's kit. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day 
at sax.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Bringing in Cameron, we can now talk about this idea of religion and superstition. So if someone didn't respond to the health interventions of the day, we've mentioned the evil eye, so that might be a reason why someone thinks they've become ill. Were there spiritual alternatives that they could turn to? Roman healthcare certainly had a lot of crossover with other disciplines such as religion and witchcraft, which we have already mentioned briefly. And illness was very often taken to be the result of having been cursed. And so if you believe that, then seeking advice from a witch as to how to undo the curse would have been quite normal. And a witch could certainly help with the prevention of illness, uh, which the Romans were very keen on because they knew that prevention was always better than the cure because cures were a bit... uh, unreliable. So the Romans were very keen on wearing amulets and they wore these to ward off evil influences and curses. And within uh, within amulets, there were different kinds of amulets and you could have an anatomical amulet made of a luxury material like gold or jet, which a doctor could prescribe to you to treat a specific condition. And at Roxeter, we have two amazing anatomical amulets made of jet, which would have hung from a necklace. One's in the shape of a breast, and that was probably worn to help with breastfeeding or mastitis. And the other is in the form of a lower leg for someone with a a problem in that part of their body. Was there thought to be a positive relationship between health and worshipping deities? So if you were religious, could you have become more healthy uh, or maintained your health? I think it's fair to say that everyone was religious in the period. Illness could be the result of insufficient or inadequate worship at your temple if you hadn't gone and sacrificed enough animals or bought enough beautiful ornaments to display in in a shrine. You were not doing enough to keep your deity happy and interested in your well-being. And so worshipping a deity was, in a way, a form of preventative medicine. For a more specific problem, you could get a priest to help you by suggesting which animal, which kind of animal would be the best to sacrifice. And a priest might then examine its entrails for guidance as to how your condition should be treated. And um, for those who were really had problems and were, were seeking a miracle cure, you could always if you could afford it, go and visit a healing sanctuary, such as the one at Yuli in Gloucestershire, which was dedicated to Mercury. And here you could visit the deity, come up close to it in the form of a statue in the temple. And as Francis was telling us, you could um, you could sleep in the dormitories. And again, a, a priest would come in the morning and ask you what your dreams were. And that would inform what your treatment could be. That's amazing. So almost a bit like a religious pilgrimage in a way. Oh, Um, definitely. But sort of almost like going to a a religious hospital, I suppose. That's a good description, yes. 
Do we have evidence of the most common ailments and how they were dealt with, you know, when it comes to superstition, religion? Superstition and religion, the, the most common has, has got to be the amulets because there is a very large range of amulets for, for people of all different uh, wealth brackets and uh, addressing a whole range of different uh, illnesses and, and issues. These are like bracelets made of metal that are quite wide, I think, aren't they? That, that sort of can be worn on the wrist and can they be worn in other areas of the body? They were quite often worn around the neck okay. because the transmission of the curse of the evil eye is into your eye. And there was a belief that if you had an amulet in the vicinity of your eye, it would be easier to decoy the curse in its trajectory. You could offer it a different eye and it might avoid your own eye and sort of go pointlessly into your amulet. And that would... That would protect you from any negativity. It would protect you. It would deflect the curse and uh, negate it was the word I was looking for. So the amulets are the main kind of evidence we have for for superstitious defense against illness. Um, and, and of course, you know, as Francis has been telling us in the mainstream medical treatments from Roxeter, we have all the uh, all the implements that Francis has been talking about. And we have a lot of these, um, the evidence for the very commonly contracted eye conditions like conjunctivitis. There is implements and grinding kit for these little blocks of pre-prepared medicines that uh, people were selling for eye complaints. Those are very common finds across the whole empire. Well, thank you for those, Cameron. That's really interesting. We can now bring in Dr. Andrew Roberts to talk about that other important aspect of staying healthy in Roman Britain and that was of course bathing seen as hugely important. Andrew what were the perceived health benefits? Well the Romans regarded bathing as essential for for many different reasons. In fact the Roman orator Cicero once wrote that bathing was one of the necessities of life and health and remember just as a kind of a, a revision of what Roman bathing is it's not just a quick scrub the Romans bathed together with other members of their community in rooms heated to different temperatures and they they often shared you know hot and cold baths and there was different types of heat so it's quite a it's quite a big deal it's not just simply for for hygiene i think it's first and foremost important because it's a really enjoyable and fundamental part of daily life the baths were often very nice places to come to relax to refresh to pamper yourself and also to connect with friends and, and feel part of the community. And so we have plenty of examples of Roman writers or ordinary people reporting, feeling that their pain, their unhappiness, their worry had dissipated after a trip to the baths, or else expressing joy at the thought of, of going to the bath. So my favourite quote from this is by the Roman author Statius, who said, I sing of the baths that sparkle with white marble, toil and care depart. So it seems like the Romans considered them very important for what we might call sort of general well-being. Now, more specifically, they also believed that there were there was a profound connection between bathing and bodily health. Bathing as often as possible was important for basic hygiene, but also as a preventative treatment against illness, often in connection with exercise and diet. It's part of that holistic approach to wellness that Cameron talked about and also that Francis talked about. 
And then we also have medical practitioners and philosophers and all who feel as though they have this kind of role within this kind of Roman medicine who often prescribe different types of bathing to treat specific ailments. Ah, if you had a, a cold, would you have been banned from the baths? Were the baths seen as this sort of place where everything was clean and hygienic and, and, and pure? That's a really interesting question. We know that a very wide range of specific complaints were dealt with at the baths. So I can give you some examples here. They were used to treat fever, inflamed intestines, liver problems. And physicians might recommend you know, hot or cold baths or an increase or decrease in bathing in connection with other treatments, depending upon which specific school of thought your physician, as, as Francis mentioned, recommended. So that might be in concert with diet or specific herbal remedies. Now, I think what you're hinting at is that you might find the baths were full of sick people, which potentially wouldn't do a lot of good to the bath's reputation because bathing and water was also associated with illness. So there is a, a little bit of a contradiction here, and I'm not entirely sure how the Romans would have resolved it. And then when we get into some of the specifics of that treatment, we can see how, how maybe the baths wouldn't necessarily be in the best, most healthy place to go in terms of our own approaches to medicine. So, for example, the Roman author Pliny used the baths to tackle his eye problems, but also reports on the baths being used to treat urinary and bowel problems. So he gives a very specific example of this. And if you are eating or, or about to go to a public pool, you might want to look away now. So if you have severe pain in the kidneys, the loins or the bladder, relief is supposedly gained by urinating in the pools of the baths while leaning forward. Leaning forward is very important here. Don't do it while leaning backwards because that's not obviously not going to work. So there's no, I think as, as Francis and Cameron mentioned, there's no concept of germs and the possibility of catching infection specifically, but presumably they were kind of aware that it was possible to get ill by going to the baths. So it sounds a little bit like the bathhouses weren't necessarily seen as a completely sort of immaculate place, a sort of a perfect place where you'd go and maintain yourself. You'd go there to sort of maintain good health, but you'd also go to sort of tackle bad health. So it's it's not just one thing, it's, it's actually trying to do both all at the same time in the same place. Yeah, it's preventative and also restorative. And I don't think they necessarily would have seen any particular contradiction in those two things. Okay, so you've sort of talked about what the treatments would be carried out at the bathhouses. Were, were there any other ones like um, perhaps massage or, you know, moving the body around uh, or anything like that? Yeah, so massage would definitely be something that you get at a bathhouse, whether that's just for, you know, for comfort and for muscle soreness or as a specific treatment. It could be combined with, with some of the other things that we've talked about. There's some other examples of treatments that I can, can give you as well. So for jaundice, for example, we have a variety of different approaches. The Roman author Celsus recommended diet regulation and cold swimming, while the author Pliny recommended that you have a, a spot of cumin in your white wine while sitting in the bath. And then also just to show that there's not really kind of fitness fads and influences are, are not a new thing. Pliny also reports of a physician in Rome who often re recommended cold water bathing and records that many of the older 
supposedly wiser men of Rome, including consuls, so you know, very important Roman officials, were being frozen stiff by following the advice of this particular physician. <laughs> okay. If, if you didn't want to be cold, obviously, I suppose you could uh, do some exercise. Was, was that also something that was on offer and recommended at bathhouses? Yeah, so exercise, exercise is really important to general health and well-being. And although it didn't have to be done at the bathhouse, the bathhouse would definitely appropriate place to exercise, particularly larger bathhouses where there would have been a large hall, an exercise hall devoted to exercise. So I'm thinking particularly of, of a large public bathhouse like uh, Roxeter, where you'd have a basilica, a large hall, almost sort of the, the size and shape of the of the nave of a, of, a, of a large church or cathedral, in which there would have been space to exercise. And this was generally seen as a kind of a prelude to the bathing experience. But other things went on as well in these spaces. So, you know, you might play games, you might taking different forms of entertainment at the baths, maybe witness a performance or discuss philosophy. And then after you've done your exercise, you've done your bathing, you might then grab a meal with 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 friends. So the baths was sort of this holistic experience that would help you look after your body, but also your your general your mental well being as well, and your and your social life. Obviously, we've talked a bit about hygiene and Romans not understanding sterility so much. I don't think um, and germs. Would the waters have been replaced? at the bathhouses on a regular basis, bearing in mind the uh, Pliny text, which suggested urinating at a certain angle forward. Um, so I can imagine, you know, the water getting a bit uh, unpleasant at that point. And also lots of people sharing the same water. Well, yes, quite. I mean, that, that's probably unavoidable. And of course, the Romans didn't have chlorine-treated water in their, in their pools. However, there would be running water and the, the baths would be amply supplied with it. So it's not as if everyone's sort of sitting, stewing in the same water for, for hours or, or throughout the day. We've got plenty of evidence to suggest that the baths were, were actually well attended and well kept. There would have been, in, certainly in public bathhouses, there would have been an official uh, known as a balneator who was appointed to ensure that the baths were in working order, the water was hot, the water was changed. And it's likely that there would have been, in say, private baths, as say in, in, a, in a Roman villa, there would have been slaves who would have you know kept the pace clean and 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 running efficiently and uh, at these public can... bath houses so oh, sorry cameron no i was just going to chip in and and say mm -hmm. that uh, in the collections for roxeter we have a very large number of lead plugs which clearly <laughs> indicate that um, they were draining the water away and then refilling the various plunge pools ah excellent and at these um, public bathhouses, which I presume to be quite large, would the pools where you had been bathing, would they have been big enough to sort of swim and maybe even do lengths? Well, there's a difference between a sort of a communal bath and an actual swimming pool. So we at Roxeter, we have both. Or we had, there were, there were both. So there are quite large communal baths. Think of a kind of like a big jacuzzi, maybe mm -hmm. even, even bigger than that. And then there was actually an outdoor swimming pool. And those are for slightly distinctive activities. You're not going to swim inside a small bath inside inside the bathing suite itself, but you would, yeah, you'd go out and swim in in the swimming pool outside. Would that be as as part of this experience, the hot bathing aspect, and then the sort of cold afterwards? 
Yeah, so that would be a, a good way to kind of refresh yourself after spending some time within the heat of the bath. Mm. What are the key English heritage sites that would have featured Roman bathhouses? Uh, you've mentioned Roxeter Roman City in Shropshire in the Midlands. So are there any others that you would um, direct listeners to perhaps visit? Well, Roxeter is, is a great example of a large public bathhouse. It's the only one that is visible, so a complete example that's visible in the country. We also have part of one at Drury Wall in Leicester. And then we have some different kinds of bathhouses as well. So at Wall Roman site, there is a, a bathhouse that was provided for officials staying the night at the Mancio, which is kind of like an official hotel for officials traveling on Rome's business. We also have a lot, of, a lot of private bathing suites at our various villas. So, for example, at Great Whitcomb, there's a bathhouse with a sort of spectacular mosaic floor featuring exotic sea creatures and a, a similar kind of affair at Ludingston Roman Villa. And then there are, well, there would have been bathhouses at all of our forts. So my personal favourite is Chester's on Hadrian's Wall. We know that there were two baths there. And the, the one that's external to the fort is perhaps the best preserved military bathhouse in Britain, which is right next to the North Tyne. Lovely spot to sort of to have a bath and, and maybe have a splash in, in, in the cold waters of the river afterwards. And then there are other bathhouses on, on Hadrian's Wall as well, for example, at, at Housesteads. I think the one that's most spectacularly located, however, is at Hardknot Fort in Cumbria, where you can see the remains of a laconicum, a, a very dry sweating room which is sort of looming above the, the majestic Eskdale Valley. And so in some, there are all sorts of different kinds of bathhouses. And I think there are about 20 in total at English heritage sites. And that's basically every single site we have with a, a sizable permanent population, you'd expect to find a bathhouse. And some actually have two or three. Out of all those that you've described that people can visit, which are best preserved, which have sort of great mosaics and that sort of thing, would you say? Well, I, I think Great Wickham is fantastic if you want to see some, some mosaics. I think the best preserved is Roxeter. And the reason for that is that it is a whole complex that takes up an entire city block. And it consists of a number of different spaces. And you can really understand the importance of, of a Roman bathhouse, a Roman bathing in the round and how it essentially is at the centre of the community. So, for example, there is the, the Basilica, where you can see where they would have shopped, where they would have exercised. You've got this grand, elaborate bathing suite itself. So you can see the investment of money in the bathing process and the fact that they want to spend time in a in a lavish space. And then there's the sort of the, the peripheral activities around that. So there's a, a food market where they would have bought fine choice cuts of meat in order and in order to take you know maybe people that they met in the bath back to have a nice meal at home and also uh, pubs for those that didn't have dining facilities where you may, might be able to go out and get some food with with friends and 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 sort of enjoy some of the social life of, of the city what i really like about roxeter is that it's both very recognizable from experiences that we have in the modern world. It looks a little bit like a spa, a shopping centre, there are pubs there, but then at the same time, there's also no building in the modern world that combines the same cocktail of social, commercial and wellness activities in the way that they're combined in a Roman public bathhouse. 
So it sounds as though Andrew is really enjoying the time travelling experience of going back to Roxeter and perhaps having a dip there. Um, Cameron, if you had to travel back in time to a Romano British bathhouse, which one would you choose? I would love to travel back in time and see uh, not a public baths as such, but I would go to the healing sanctuary at Lydney in Gloucestershire, dedicated to the god Nodens. And they certainly would have had a baths, but there I would love to lie in the healing baths that they had. And possibly I would lie there in the company of healing dogs, which seemed to have been a very big feature of the cult based at that particular site. Fascinating. Okay. <laughs> Opens up m- loads more questions, which we don't have time for, unfortunately. <laughs> but um, uh, Francis, um, do you have a particular place that people can visit that uh, you would like to see as it was in its heyday? Yes, and I would go to Chester's. So it's a military bathhouse, as Andrew said, but the walls, you know, stand six feet or more high. So you can already start to visualise how it might have have looked. But, you know, I'd love to see it in action. And what I'd really like to do is go back, because we don't really understand if these bathhouses allowed civilians in. And I'd love to go back and watch it in action, work out and find out, you know, how did they work out a system for who could go in and at what time? Because... There was 500 men based at Chester's Fort. They couldn't all fit in the bathhouse at the same time. You know, what was the rota? And were the civilians in that settlement around the fort allowed in at all? Or was it just purely for the soldiers and the civilians had to look on? But yeah, Chester's is my favourite for sure. And how often they changed that water? <laughs> yes. I mean, I'm sure they did change it, but I still am not sure that it would pass any hygiene tests today. <laughs> You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we'll be back to reveal the story of the little-known princess, abbess and miracle worker, St Milberger. She's a great Anglo-Saxon saint. She stands comparison with figures like St Hilda. Then there's also her legacy as a significant local saint. She remains to this day a Shropshire lass. Thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs>